though, as you've been hearing on the news, we are going to hear a bit more in about an hour from now from the Vancouver Park Board and the city with an update on what is going to be done for people who are currently living in Strathcona Park. And earlier on this uh, station, on the Mike Smith Show, Pete Fry, a Vancouver City Councillor with the Green Party, uh, talked to Mike Smith about when exactly people living in Strathcona are going to be moved into other housing. Uh, you know, it's a good question. I mean, this being the sort of first step, I, I, I expect that we're going to see some stuff happening this week as far as moving some of the services in and starting to get some uh, some clarity around the next steps. We do have spaces that are currently being um, secured for shelter and for housing, so that's underway as well. And and it, it's all going to start happening this week. I can't give a specific timeline as to when folks will be out of the park, though. Joining me on the line is Jamie McLaren, a Strathcona resident, also a lawyer. Jamie, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Hi, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts on it's been a while since uh, we learned that the Jericho Hostel and some other sites, uh, the, the motel on Kingsway, had been identified as places that were going to be used as housing. Uh, how confident are you that with the release of this uh, kind of a game plan today, it's actually going to happen? Well, uh, a little more confident than yesterday. You know, here in Strathcona, we've uh, learned to treat political statements with a, a degree of suspicion. Uh, we've had assurances about things happening in the in the past, you know, several months ago, um, specifically around these particular shelters. So, um, you know, it, it's good news, but it we'll believe it when we see it is, is sort of the attitude that I'm, I'm hearing and seeing in, in the neighbourhood. Uh, how are things going there right now? I know a lot of residents heard explosions and reported explosions there last night. Uh, what is the situation there like right now? Yeah, I, I think what's happening is campers are finding, you know, whatever way they, they can to stay warm and dry and often that involves heating their tank or tents with propane um and i know some propane tanks have been gone going missing from backyards in the neighborhood so that all you know adds up i guess um but you know it, these are unsafe ways to to stay warm at night and so while a, a warming tent being introduced to the camp or to the park would be helpful it, it won't keep people warm inside their tents at night and so what they really need are, are warm and dry uh shelters and, and ultimately warm and dry houses, uh, permanent homes. So, you know, we're, we're hopeful that these things will happen sooner than later, um, but we're still not reassured. Uh, the chair of the Park Board, too, it's uh, been, uh, we've learned that uh, there is uh, a possibility of a court injunction, but that uh, being, we're being told that that will only happen when other supports are in place and when housing can be found for people to remove people from the park. Um, do you think enough has been done to go into the park or at least attempt to figure out who are legitimately homeless and in need of these shelter spaces, who is in need of health care, uh, and who is taking advantage of the vul- most vulnerable in that park. Yeah, I, I don't think enough has been done. Uh, that's pretty clear. I don't know what exactly has been done, but but certainly not enough. I know that on October 8th, City Council at the City of Vancouver uh, resolved to to do immediate triage of the needs in the, in the camp. And uh, I don't, from what I've heard, that wasn't done in any kind of real way. Um, so so that obviously needs to happen in order to you know determine what what the needs are and get people the type of shelter they need and the type of supports they need. Um, but it's, it's all very late in the game, you know, where we're, we're dealing with uh, very cold temperatures and, and rain now. And it looks like the, the campers will spend Christmas and the New Year in, in pretty much the same situation, albeit maybe with some showers. Um, you know, and, and it's just um, I think we're all waiting for 
our our politicians at every level to to show the political courage to you know to to find shelter in, in all the different neighborhoods of Vancouver, not just in Strathcona. Um, that's what's needed here. You know, everyone needs to take a, a collective responsibility of, of the people who are in Strathcona Park and and who are you know down on their luck and, and marginalized in many cases. And and so everyone needs to step up here. Uh, how concerned are you, though, what we saw with Oppenheimer? Uh, granted, it's it's getting the remediation now, and it was fenced off when people were moved off most recently. Uh, but that park has had similar issues in the past, and there have been tent cities moved out of that park only to return in the future. Uh, how do you deal with this situation and make sure that Strathcona Park doesn't become a tent city again? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. You know, and I think, you know, some of it will require some careful and, and sensitive enforcement of, of bylaws. Um, but I think the infill and so the backfill of these parks, while um, some campers are put into uh, appropriate shelters, I mean, that's, that will happen. I think that'll be inevitable and, and it'll be a challenge to, to deal with that. You know, Oppenheimer Park's been, been um, fenced for, for many weeks, for months now. Um, and eventually they have to take those fences down and then we'll see what happens with it. But it's, you know, What's really needed at the end of the day is, is much more social housing, much more affordable housing, and, and that's where I think the, the solutions lie. But it's, it's not easy. It's complex. I don't envy the politicians their task, but they need to now is the time to show real courage, I think. And shifting gears a little bit, and we are going to talk more about what appears to be happening. It's been, what, three weekends in a row now, in-person church services, even though the current COVID-19 rules don't permit that. If we just fold and say, oh, okay, you know, we will uh, buckle to whatever restrictions the government arbitrarily decides to put in place, uh, then the future of our society is not particularly bright. Um, we're basically heading towards a, a period of authoritarianism. So that was a church supporter, Damien Dupont, speaking with Global News just yesterday. Uh, we also heard from Sergeant Krista Roloch with the Chilliwack RCMP talking about a bit of a different uh, way they are going about dealing with this. So on the first two Sundays of the public health order, which pertained to in-person congregation, the Chilliwack RCMP took an approach of education and awareness hoping that we would gain voluntary compliance. Um, last week was the third week and we did have some places of worship that uh, continued to violate the public health order and so that's why we took the measures that we did in terms of submitting a report to BC Prosecution Service regarding those violations. Let's bring in Sarah Lehman, criminal lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me back on. Uh, what are what are you? What is your reaction then? Hearing from RCMP saying rather than issuing tickets, uh, they've instead gone the route of forwarding this information to the prosecution service. Well, I find it surprising that they're saying that they haven't issued tickets yet, when that would seem to me to be one of the first steps that they would want to take in order to try to encourage compliance using penal consequences that really aren't all that. Uh, elevated. Um, that being said, it seems as though um, it's pretty clear that some of these churches are willfully wishing to continue to breach the health orders, almost in protest of them. Um, and so their compliance may not be uh, actually garnered through the use of fines, and the RCMP may rightly be of the view that um, more stringent uh, means are necessary. 
And I know we have seen some uh, tickets issued. Last week we were talking uh, in Abbotsford, I believe, one of the churches there, or, and uh, in Langley, one of the churches I know had been warned and tickets had been issued. Do you think that it needs then a different approach as far as the amount that the ticket is for? Well, I mean, there's always fine-tuning when it comes to these kinds of matters. Um, And that's why a lot of it is left up to officer discretion, as is the case here. Uh, Things like bylaw fines, um, infractions, administrative penalties, and, of course, criminal code offences are all just tools in a police officer's toolbox in order to try to encourage compliance or to deter problematic behaviour. So which one of those tools the officer elects to use is usually dependent on those specific circumstances as they're presenting at the time. Uh, and so it's difficult to apply a one-size-fits-all uh, one approach. Uh, I think it's very important for us to have all of these different options available. And is it different, too, when we're talking about something like a church gathering, when it's simple, uh, pretty easy to see? If people are arriving in person, they're going into a building in person, they're defying uh, the orders that are in place now, different than, say, a house party where it might be more difficult to detect. You might try and, and see that there are vehicles in the driveway or, or other places where people are are not following the rules. Uh, Does that make, say, church gatherings an easier target? Well, it may be that, but also I think that many of these churches have been very vocal about uh, their desire to wantonly disregard these public health orders and to continue gathering. Uh, I've seen a lot of noise uh, in the news about their desire to actually challenge these health provisions uh, using the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, saying that they're going contrary to their civil liberties. So, I mean, that's garnered a lot of public attention. It's brought them into the spotlight, and I think that's one of the reasons why police continue to monitor that situation. Uh, I mean, they're basically compelled to do so as a result of the circumstances here. Are you surprised at the level of which there, that this rule is there, that there seem to be so many people that are willing to, to simply say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to follow it? I'm a bit surprised, um, particularly given the fact that there are other ways for people to continue to engage in their uh, social activities, in their community, uh, to engage in their religious worship without having to contravene health orders. And we see examples of that uh, all the time uh, in different parts of the country, and even here in BC, where we have churches, um, you know, holding things like um, uh, parking lot uh, vigils and, and, and services uh, that are remote. Um, so we're having examples of different types of tools that can be used in order to continue to facilitate access while also complying with health orders. So it is surprising to me to see some people just completely disregarding that. And does it make it more complicated when one of the arguments being used is, and this tends to be used more by religious groups, uh, saying that these restrictions are unreasonable and that they infringe our rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Well, of course, we know we have these civil rights and liberties under the Charter that are guaranteed. But one of the things that people often forget is that they are not absolute rights. So the Charter itself actually contemplates mechanisms by which those Charter rights and freedoms can be limited. And in fact, many of our Charter rights are limited um, all the time, every day. Uh, It just has to be um, fair and reasonable uh, in a free and democratic society. And in a case like this, where we have a pandemic situation, a state of emergency, those limitations are going to be a little bit more onerous than we would expect under 
normal circumstances. Uh, do you see the people then or do you anticipate uh, that, uh, I mean, we see it all the time, pandemic or no pandemic, that there are laws in place, so people break the laws, but still fight them, fight their tickets or still fight uh, fight to, to, to get uh, to not have to pay the fine or whatever the punishment might be. Uh, do you see that being something that's ha- going to happen here as well, that uh, if somebody is found contravening the, the new law, the new rules uh, when it comes to the pandemic, that uh, they'll fight it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's the case anytime, you know, there is an infraction being issued, whether it's a new law or a well-established law, you know, people are often inclined to dispute that for whatever reason. And certainly I don't wish to deter people from disputing something that they've been issued with if they feel that it's unreasonable or they have some defense to it. Um, But it seems that there are particular groups of people right now in society who are actually going out there trying to uh, get these types of tickets or charges for the purpose of disputing them, uh, for creating noise and attention around their specific cause. And really, it's a little bit concerning because we're talking about, again, a public health emergency here where people's lives are potentially on the line. And, and does that make it different? Do you think then different than I can't even think of a law to compare it to? But it is something that that this this is extraordinary. We're, we haven't dealt with this before, and this is a kind of all new territory for us. It is absolutely. I mean, we have never seen a global pandemic like this on this scale at any point. You know, at least in our uh, recent memory of human history. Um, and so, certainly, this is an unprecedented situation, and we're hearing that word being used a lot. But it's true. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot in terms of uh, legal fallout from this for years to come. Um, I think that this is really just the tip of the iceberg. All right, Sarah, we'll have to leave it there for today. But thanks so much. Always so good to chat with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. All right, you too. So we want to take a look at what's happening with real estate, but not the numbers that we normally talk about. We tend to look month to month what's happening in Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley. Uh, We've also talked a lot about people moving to more recreational areas, uh, deciding that they're going to make the work from home maybe permanent or more permanent. Is that being reflected when we look at where people are purchasing property? Well, The answer could be yes. And Philip Jones joins me now, president and owner of Royal LePage East Kootenai Realty. Philip, thanks so much for talking with us today. Uh, You're welcome. Uh, Are you seeing a lot of people that maybe in the past hadn't looked at certain parts of BC and are now showing interest? Uh, Yeah, quite a bit. Actually, uh, from other parts of BC as well as uh, Eastern Canada even as well. And, and what about Alberta? I would imagine it's not too, too far from a lot of places in Alberta as well. Yeah, we're actually quite close to Alberta. We're only uh, about um, anywhere from two hours by car to four hours max. So, yeah, we get a lot of uh, recreational traffic from Alberta in normal situations. Now we have uh, COVID, of course, so people are looking at maybe retiring early, buying properties that they're moving to. Are you seeing people as well that are doing this with the idea of they don't have to go to a physical office at all, or maybe not as much as before, and are looking at at finding a place where they can get more space and still maybe, maybe not retire, but still be able to work from there? Correct, yeah. We've had that for quite some time, actually. Um, 
once we had high-speed internet a number of years ago, we were getting people that could carry on their business and their jobs from anywhere, and uh, they like the lifestyle here. Uh, Where are the most popular areas? Well, probably um, Fernie, Kimberly, Invermere. And what uh, are Cranbrook, the th- Cranbrook to some extent because Cranbrook is the uh, the regional center, right? Yeah. And are there specific things as far as it outdoor activities? Is it kind of the more smaller town living, or are there specific things that you're hearing from people that that's what they're they're most drawn to? Well, the lifestyle is the big thing. Uh, they can be fifteen twenty minutes from a good ski hill in the wintertime, and lots of cross country skiing, lots of hiking. Uh, in the Rocky Mountains, quite spectacular, and uh, and then in the summertime we have lots of lakes and and so on. And what types of properties are you seeing people? Do they want freestanding homes? Are they looking for property to to build their own kind of dream house, or is there a trend there? I don't know that there's a trend because we're getting a real variety of uh, of purchase options. Everything from a condo on the ski hill to a condo. We've had buyers coming in from eastern Canada recently and buying condos for um, like one or two bedroom condos with the idea of renting them out until they need them. Uh, people are buying single family homes. Some of our most expensive sales this year have been people from higher price markets like Vancouver. And uh, some people, um, even this one was from Vancouver, just uh, it closes tomorrow actually. And uh, it's a large parcel, 150 acres and uh, of raw land. So hmm. it's quite a variety. And when you say 150 acres of raw land, that, that is a pretty big uh, piece of property. What kind of is the going price if somebody is wanting to buy property like that? Well, that goes anywhere from about 3500 to 10000 an acre, depending on um, access to water and services and, and so on. Right. And, and I would imagine people then just do have kind of big goals or, or dreams of what they can do with that. Yeah, it's probably, um, they're thinking that they, in many cases, we're seeing people want to get out of the crowded cities and they want to have uh, more space, more privacy. Um, They're really well social distanced when they're on 150 acres. There's nobody even close to them, except for the deer and the elk. Right. (laughs) <laughs> which which should be okay. Uh, That's right. Do you have to talk to people, though, and make sure they're not over-romanticizing it, or maybe they've watched a Netflix series that, that takes place in a rural town and everything's perfect? Do people have, can they have unrealistic expectations? Well, I suppose people can always have that, but we always encourage people to um, look closely at what they're doing, to look at comparable sales, number one, for market values to make sure those are correct and make sure that the property that they're buying is going to do what they have planned for it to do and what they want it to do. Right, because those seem like those seems like seem like those would be important questions to look at for any type of property, but especially if you're looking to pack up and have a significant change to your lifestyle. Correct. Yeah.
And, and you mentioned, too, that this was already happening kind of pre-pandemic. How much of an impact do you think the pandemic has had on people looking to get out and getting uh, some open space? And maybe maybe even they'd been considering it before, but now uh, feel like it's the, the right time. Oh, a great deal of uh, renewed interest and expanded interest. Um, I would say that market has probably increased at least tenfold, maybe more. Hmm. Wow, that's that's a, a pretty impressive number. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Uh, it's it's quite uh, our biggest problem right now in helping our clients uh, uh, with properties like this is finding enough inventory because we're short of inventory and. Um, it's it's a challenge to find what they want sometimes. And sometimes people think they're going to come up to the rural areas and things are going to be really, really inexpensive. But that's not always the case. The, the reason for that is that building costs are the same or higher in uh, rural areas than they are in the larger community because there just isn't the... Um, the sub-trades, the service suppliers, and so on. Right. And there, you mentioned the high-speed internet and how that that was a big draw. What about other services? I would imagine people are still wanting to know how, how close am I to a hospital? What is the health care like? And that kind of thing. Exactly. And uh, we sold a, uh, a condo project here, or well, it's actually probably 15 years ago, and I was surprised even then at the people that were moving to the Cranbrook area and some of them from more remote areas like Indermere and so on. And the reason they were doing that is because of the regional hospital being here, which has since expanded uh, dramatically, and the regional airport, uh, it's an international airport. And we have about, you know, well, pre-COVID, we had about six to nine flights a day uh, to Vancouver and to Calgary. So we've got extremely good um, communications physically and, uh, and electronically. Hmm, all right. Well, interesting to see the numbers have changed so much just in this short period of time. Uh, Philip, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for taking the time with us. Anytime. Thanks. Some new polling uh, done here in BC or well, right across the country, but shows uh, Canadians. Uh, this was a poll done by the Angus Reid Institute and shows that more Canadians are very willing and open to getting the vaccine as soon as it becomes available to them. So some promising news there. What does it mean, though, once you get the shot and if it's uh, the Pfizer shot where you have to get the second shot a few weeks uh, later, what does it mean as far as how does it change life? How does it bring an end to the pandemic. Well, Jason Tetro is with us once again, immunologist, scientist, and host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time once again. Hey, great to be joining you. Uh, what are your thoughts as so many people are paying attention to this and applauding uh, the vaccine being here in Canada? Oh, it is such great news. Um, I mean, this is one of those unprecedented things. I know that's so overused right now, but it's so true. Something that normally takes 10 years and something that we actually saw with Ebola actually sat on a shelf for 10 years, all being done in a matter of 10 months. 
And here we are now. We've got the vaccine. It's on our soil. It's just one of many that are going to be coming. I mean, this is showing the resilience that research gives us. And it also gives us the opportunity to finally start being optimistic um, now that we're sort of past the halfway point and we can start looking towards the end as opposed to constantly having to brace for something that's going to be even worse tomorrow than it is today. Uh, I got this question from a listener who emailed saying uh, she wasn't able to uh, call in because we're going to open up the phone lines uh, in a few mm-hmm. moments right after the break. Um, she wanted to question, and, and hopefully we can address this and then put it aside at least for the next half hour. She wanted to call in about uh, so many people on social media and different platforms talking about various conspiracy theories, uh, saying this is the type of uh, vaccine that's going to change every cell in your body. It's going mm-hmm. to cause harm. Uh, somebody called into Mike Smith's show earlier today uh, asking about this as well. What do you say when you do? Because we do unfortunately hear about this. Yeah, it's very, very simple. You take a little piece of genetic material, you put it into your arm. It's got a little lipid shell around it, fat. And the reason that you make it out of fat is because, well, every cell that you have is made of fat. And so what's going to happen is it's in that little area, it's that piece of genetic material is going to go into a cell. It's going to ask for permission to create a protein. And then when it does, that protein is going to go onto the edge of that particular cell. And then when that happens, your immune system is going to see it. And it's going to go, hey, don't know you. I'm going to try and memorize you. And then when you get the booster, and we can talk about this a bit later, um, what's going to happen is that process is going to happen again. But this time, your immune system is going to go, hey, I remember you. Okay, cool. I'm going to make more of what we do to protect ourselves so that when you actually see the virus, your immune system is ready to take it on and you don't end up with symptoms or any kind of disease. That's the way the vaccine works. All the other stuff is just simply conspiracy theories. All right. That summed it up perfectly. Um, You mentioned the the one. So the Pfizer vaccine that we are dealing with right now that is the first one to get the approval is a two shot vaccine. So what is happening when when somebody gets that first shot, as we saw earlier today in Ontario? uh, Is that person uh, are they on their way to, to being fully vaccinated? What what is the difference between the first shot and what happens in the two weeks or three weeks till you get the second shot? So basically, it's kind of like learning how to catch a ball. Um, If someone throws you a football or a baseball the first time, you might catch it, um, but most likely you'll fumble with it and stuff like that. That's kind of like what the first shot is doing. It's making your immune system realize that there's a ball that's being thrown at you, and it's like, oh, okay, cool. i got to figure out how to make this uh, a proper catch. The booster is essentially giving your immune system another opportunity to learn how to perfect it. And before you know it, your immune system is simply going, hey, I could be a wide receiver for the Lions. This is awesome. And that's basically what happens after the second shot. So the first one is really just giving you a chance to learn how to, you know, catch, fumble a little bit here and there without any risk. The second one is really what primes you, gets you into that good training mode. And then if you actually are challenged by the, uh, the actual virus later on, your immune system is all good to go. So why do we have some vaccines then that have two shots and we're talking about other ones that will be coming into, the, into play that only have one? So when you talk about the mRNA vaccines, such as the ones that were uh, Pfizer, Moderna, uh, and even some of the other ones um, that are coming in that are based on a virus as opposed to a fat shell, um, the reason that you want that booster is just essentially to make sure that your immune system knows what it needs to be doing. Now, in many cases where you're going to be using sort of an older platform technology, much like we do for uh, the measles virus, like we do for the uh, flu virus, 
you only need that one shot because what it's doing is it's creating such a, a powerful response that you don't need that booster. Your immune system is just like, wow, okay, we know what to do. All right, that makes sense. Uh, it goes into now. I understand why when I had to get a rabies shots, it was five shots instead of just one. Well, yeah, and rabies is one of those really, really peculiar types of viruses that actually goes through your um, nerve cells as opposed to you know any other cells. And so what you have to do is you have to figure out how you're going to be able to deal with that virus in the nerve cells, and that's why you, that takes up to those five shots. And as you probably know, nobody wants to have those five shots, which is why you don't pet raccoons. <laughs> That's very good advice. I didn't pet a raccoon, by the way. Um, oh, all right, sure. I believe you. I do. Thank I you. do. Conspiracy theory. Um, so you have the vaccine. Let's yeah. say you've now had both doses. Can yeah. you still carry the virus or no? Okay, so this is really what we're trying to find out at the moment is, yes, you can be exposed to the virus. Yes, the virus will go into the cells on the very outer layer of your body and maybe replicate one or two times before your immune system comes in and says, enough of that. However, how many times is that going to be? And can that number allow you to infect another person? We've done this and we've seen this in primates. And the answer is no, you can't pass it on to somebody else. But we can't necessarily extrapolate. So this is where right now we have to start looking at how we're going to be able to take the data from these trials and also from the um, post-approval trials and find out just what the viral load is going to be so that we then can say, okay, once you've had that second shot, a week later, you're going to be okay. Is there a difference, do you think, then, between if somebody has had COVID-19 and recovered, does that person need the vaccine the same as somebody who's never had it? So right now, I would say yes. And the reason is we're still looking at what happens with the immune system after you've had a COVID-19 infection. And it looks like you're maintaining your immunity for about six maybe nine months, but this has only been around for about 10 months, so we can't really extrapolate any further than that. Now, if it turns out that, you know, this time next year, if someone actually didn't get vaccinated but had had COVID and still has a really good, robust immune response, well, then maybe we're not going to need that. And so at this point, I would still suggest that getting the vaccine is going to be a good idea, much like, you know, if you had the flu last year, it's still good to get the flu shot this year, right? Right. So that's sort of how it's going to be. But you may end up finding yourself at the end of the line. And by the time it gets to you, we may already know that answer. Uh, what about uh, the, the other measures being taken, wearing a mask, physically distancing? Do those go away once you're vaccinated? Once you are vaccinated, no. Once 70 to 80 percent of the population has immunity, the elimination threshold or what like people like to call herd immunity, then yes. So that's really what it comes down to is if you want to go and get vaccinated for yourself, that's awesome. Please do. But if you want to get vaccinated so that we don't have to wear these bloody masks all the time, I would say, hey, go for it. It doesn't really matter what your motivation happens to be. We all want to get rid of this pandemic. Just make sure that when your time comes, you roll up your sleeve. And so I think you answered the 70 to 80 percent because somebody had emailed me the question to what what uh, percentage of the population needs to be vaccinated to make this uh, effective? Yeah. So when we talk about um, vaccination versus 
um, the actual elimination threshold. We also have to take into consideration the people who already have had uh, the virus and have some immunity, okay? That's why I say the 70 80%, but that also means that probably between 60 to 70% of the population will need to be vaccinated in this first wave that's going to take us until probably the end of the spring, early summer. So do we know at this point, is this vaccination going to be more like chickenpox, measles, or more like a flu shot? Probably measles if, um, if, if it does hold out that it's going to be longer. Um, but because we still don't know and we're going to wait, the next couple of years we may end up seeing it more like a flu shot until we finally understand how long that immunity stands for and then maybe we'll start to reduce it. This is going to, you know, again, this is another one of these unprecedented things whereby we've got a vaccine so fast that we haven't really understood how long it's going to give you that protection. And so this is going to sort of move along over time. Now, we have seen this a little bit with the flu vaccine when it was being developed in the 90s and into 2000s before it became sort of widely available. But again, not at this speed. Remember, the first flu vaccines came around like in the 1950s. All right. Lots of people with questions for Jason Tetro. Let's go right to the phones. And Bruce is on the line uh, from in uh, Vancouver. Bruce, go ahead. Vancouver, thank you very much. I'm probably talking on behalf of hundreds of thousands of Canadians. Um, I'm totally blind. I know a lot of people that are blind and visually impaired. And of course, we have friends that are blind and visually impaired. And this would be across Canada. I will go out in a few minutes actually to ride a bus and to go to a store. And when I go there, I will see things with my hands. I will not know whether I'm within six feet or more than six feet from people. I will wear a mask. I walk with a guide dog. But my senses really are actually offset, my blindness, by touching things. And sometimes I will be touching where other people have touched. Am I a vulnerable population? Mm. Jason, what would you say to that? Yes, um, In terms of the fact that you are at a high risk of uh, essentially coming into contact with high-touch surfaces that could potentially spread, yes, you're also at higher risk of being within that six-foot distance of another individual, especially if they are not aware um, that you are visually impaired, then yes. And so this is the type of thing where... I would suggest that you would probably be fitting into around that fourth in line when we start talking about people who are at risk of uh, disease as a result of their um, their work. I, I'm essentially you're you may not be an essential worker, but you're an essential liver, uh, lifer. God, not liver. But anyways, um, the fact is that um, this is something that really should be brought up in terms of you know where will you fit on that list. And uh, my goodness, um, I, I hope that you continue to do well. Um, you know, keep wearing the masks and keep using the hand sanitizer. Yeah, thanks for the call, Bruce. Thank you so much for that. Let's go to Rick in Port Moody. Jason, I wish you the best uh, during these uh, wild times. But m- my question is, is based around food. Um, for, for decades, my family has always been kind of one of those crazy anal people that have always washed the fruits and vegetables, and that's carrying on because, uh, now because of the virus. But one thing we didn't do was, was wipe down any hard surfaces, boxes, uh, bags. We're doing that now. But what, what's, what's really still in, in um, a question in my mind is, uh, what happens with, if there's a virus on something that hasn't been washed down and stuck in the freezer. Will the freezer kill it, or should we just continue wiping down everything that goes into the freezer as well? Um, I mean, if you want to be wiping stuff down, that that's great. Uh, please understand that the likelihood of any kind of uh, droplet 
being touched while you're putting it away uh, is going to be very minimal. Um, you also don't necessarily have to be washing anything that's porous or, or cleaning anything that's porous, like a, like a takeout bag or anything like that. Um, that was from all the worries that we had in April. We now know that that doesn't play a role. Now, to your question with respect to freezers, um, what's going to end up happening is that if you were to essentially put it into the freezer cold, um, it wouldn't be a problem for the virus. However, if there's any type of water there and it starts to create those icicles, then what those, that ice is essentially going to do is break up the virus on the outside, the lipid layer, so that it's inactivated. That's also one of the reasons why a lot of people like to throw their jeans into the freezer. Um, it doesn't actually work because it's not cold enough. But once you get to a point where you have that minus 10 down to minus 15, um, you're probably going to be able to kill viruses if, if it's just water. All right. Thanks for that. Let's see if we can get to everybody here. And next up is Nancy in New Westminster. Nancy, go ahead. Hi, Jill and Jason. Um, Question about allergies. I'm really struggling with whether I'm going to get the uh, vaccine or not, because as I've gotten older, my allergies have increased. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily the allergens or the vaccine itself that I might be allergic to. It's the um, the stuff that goes with it, the filler and the and the stuff, the binding agents that go with it. Do you do we have any understanding of how that's going to work or how that might or might not affect people? Um, absolutely. Uh, so the excipients uh, are essentially some salts. Uh, sugar, which, you know, it works as a bit of a preservative, and also uh, what we call the fat layer. In other words, the, the vehicle is, is um, made of fat, and it has a particular uh, shape, so it's made of certain types of fat. Uh, it's, it's all patented and everything like that. Um, we've learned in the past, remember, this is 30-year-old technology that's been developing. So we've known from the 1990s that these lipids can invoke immune responses, and sometimes they can invoke what are called anaphylactoid reactions, which are different than anaphylaxis. Um, And as a result of that, if you happen to be suffering from allergies, it's probably best in this first wave for you maybe not to get the vaccine until we have a much better appreciation. However, one thing I should note, and Jill, have you noticed that since those first two cases of people having a problem in the UK, have you heard of any adverse reactions or anyone having a problem or anyone needing to go to hospital as a result of getting this vaccine? I have not. I have not either. That's how safe this is. They're going to have these little hiccups here and there, but for the most part, um, they know who should not get it. And, and as long as we keep that out in the public, through the media, through your show and, and other places like that, I think we'll keep people safe. All right. My apologies to anybody on the line if we didn't get to you. Uh, we'll have Jason back on the show. Jason, that's my invitation. We'll have to bring you back on the show at some point. But thank you so much for joining us for the full half hour today. Appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Well, earlier today, uh, the SBCA put out a call saying they are calling for a moratorium on mink farming in British Columbia and an immediate suspension of all mink farm licenses. This comes after eight workers on a mink farm in the Fraser Valley tested positive for COVID-19 and several mink have died on that farm. Well, joining me to talk more about this call is Jeff Erton, General Manager of Strategy and Innovation at the BC SBCA. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much, Jill. Uh, What are your main concerns with what uh, we're seeing at uh, one or more mink farms in the Fraser Valley right now? Mm -hmm. 
Well, we're, we're extremely concerned with what we're seeing. And while the government has taken action to at least test the workers and test the mink, um, we've got uh, 200 plus mink on that farm that have already died of COVID-19. And um, uh, frankly, we're concerned that it's going to get out of hand. And do the, are the concerns new or has the BCSPCA had concerns with this type of farming in the past? Yeah, we mink farming is not something that um, we support as an organization. And uh, to be honest, I think it's really BC's dirty little secret. Um, these are farms who raise these beautiful natural wild animals who are native to BC in tiny barren cages for the sole purpose of, you know, killing them and selling their pelts overseas uh, so that wealthy people in other countries um, can wear this this luxury product. It, it's something that 85% of British Columbians already oppose. And I, I don't think people generally know that this is happening in BC. Um, and it also is um, only possible, only permissible um, through exemptions that this industry has to the Wildlife Act. You know, like no one else in BC can own wild animals. You can't just do that. You can't go out and, and capture a wild animal and keep it to own it for some purpose. Um, but the fur industry in BC has been given a special exemption from those prohibitions. And I think what we're seeing now with this existing inhumane industry is that people are incredibly alarmed about what's happening with these animals now um, having COVID-19 and the, the possible uh, human health and animal health implications of that uh, across the province. Uh, what do you say, though, every time when we do talk about this uh, on this station, we tend to get calls from people that are in the mink farming industry saying, well, wait a minute, we we treat our animals with respect, we raise them humanely. Um, they take issue with being told that the conditions, uh, to, to, to paint all of the conditions with that one brush saying it's inhumane. What do you say to that? Mm-hmm. But these are individuals who, you know, I think I, I have no doubt that they put a lot of care into what they do. Um, and yet these are wild animals, right? These are um, wild mink who are found uh, as native species here in B.C. And um, they're being raised in these tiny wire cages without room to, you know, roam as they normally would to explore and to hunt and to fish and to um, to explore in the water. Uh, these are marine animals, and they're they're kept in these tiny wire cages. So um, I think the you know the public can judge for themselves whether or not they think that meets the needs of that animal, uh, regardless of what um, one of those individual farmers uh, is able to do on a day to day basis to provide uh, you know feed and water for them. Is it different because we're talking about wild animals? and talking about animals that are used for their pelts rather than, I'm thinking back several years to when avian flu uh, was rampant in the Fraser Valley. We saw a mass calling of chickens and other birds on farms and and that uh, it was a huge concern at the time. But there wasn't a call to shut down the chicken farms or the farms that had these birds. It was to get it in order. Is it different because mm-hmm. we're talking about a wild animal and pelts? It absolutely is. And, and I'll tell you, there, there are two things uh, in particular that are different here. Um, one is that, um, as you've mentioned, this is an industry that's already um, per, it's already operating in a way that is just not aligned with, with the values of British Columbians any longer. 
um, the fact that there are wild animals being raised in in cages, uh, the fact that it's for um, you know for the fur industry. British Columbians don't support that, and 85% of them have have uh, have have shared that in polling data. So you know that's the first thing. The second thing that's different here is that we're living through a global pandemic right now, and um, I can't see any rational rationale at all um, for propping up this industry as the government has been doing to allow it to perform um, it, its its business through a global pandemic where there are risks here to human health, to the health of other native wildlife, to the health of our pets, if this uh, disease gets into um, those those communities or populations of animals. And and is it the pandemic then that's that's caused this uh, this response from the SBCA? Because I would think that if the conditions on these mink farms is inhumane and doesn't it doesn't uh, doesn't reach the standard of care that the SBCA would deem reasonable, uh, wouldn't they have been charged in the past? It's a great question. So um, the SBCA in our law enforcement duties is um, only able to enforce uh, the law. Right now, aside from that, which and the, and the essentially the law says this is a legal practice, and um, uh, there are industry standards that the farms may or may not be meeting. We don't really know if they're actually meeting those their own standards or not. Um, but separate from that, uh, you know, the, the SBCA we're a society of British Columbians who have you know a philosophy of what is right for animals, and that's distinct from our law enforcement role, um, and and um, in that sphere, um, we're very clearly um, you know, deeply concerned about uh, the existence of this industry, and um, so we, uh, you know, we, we engage in dialogue with industry and government from time to time about this industry and share our our concerns about it. But when something like this comes up um, that demonstrates the incredible risk that an industry like this. Um, uh, uh, exposes us all to. Um, it, um, it, it's really an opportunity to to raise the conversation and bring bring it directly to government's doorstep. And I think it's you know people will be uh, um, I think people will f- see a very clear connection here with what we're talking about with COVID nineteen with the origins of the virus. So you know this virus originated um, in wild animal populations in China, and you know, it's traveled all the way around the world. And now new populations of animals um, here in BC, elsewhere across North America, in Europe, um, are uh, are getting sick with this virus because we're keeping wild animals in intensive um, confinement conditions in these farms, uh, which then risks um, other kinds of animals and back to people. So we've had, um, we've had uh, a farm... Um, test positive in Utah just yesterday, this was announced, uh, the very first wild mink that tested positive um, in the proximity of other mink farms. So this is this virus is now coming going from these farms onto wild mink populations. And so they're at risk. Uh, We've had um, cats in Denmark who have tested positive for the disease. Um, who are you know free roaming in the vicinity of these farms as well, and we've also had you know farm workers on some of these mink farms in other countries who've contracted the virus back from mink um, with mutations. Uh, and so uh, when we look at this issue, um, the the 
list of negatives on the balance sheet just piles up on one side. Um, and I look at it and I say, I, I just can't imagine what the rationale would be to continue propping up this industry with all of those um, those risks. Have you had any response to this call at this point? Because like you said, too, that, that even if you don't agree with it and you think it should stop, it's still technically it's legal at this point. Uh, so would there be compensation then for farmers if this moratorium went ahead or have you had any response to it? We haven't had a response yet. We just wrote to government uh, late last week, and you know we're, we're confident that they'll do the right thing here, and they'll they'll move forward to protect people uh, and animals in the province. And um, so we're looking forward to hearing back from them. And I think as you raise the issue of compensation, that's a very fair point. You know, um, you do have these business owners who have been providing a service. Um, and uh, if if the people of British Columbia feel that that service that's being provided, that industry that's been operated, is no longer aligned with our public values, it's no longer aligned with, um, uh, you know, our health status for people and animals in the province, and the government chooses to uh, begin to phase it out, then um, then it may be appropriate for there to be some compensation for the farmers to transition them into another type of business, perhaps. All right. Well, we are, are certainly going to uh, stay and or see what happens next and what kind of a response does come uh, from government. Jeff Erton, thanks so much for joining us uh, to bring this to us today. Well, these past few months have been challenging to say the least. A lot of people having to change the way we've done things, the way we've taken doing things for granted. We've seen many examples of people rising to the occasion, many examples of people adapting. Our show contributor, John Jang, is joining us now with one example. This is an age-old Christmas tradition that has had to adopt, adopt some modern techniques. Good afternoon, Jill. As you know, the holidays have a very different feel this year because of COVID-19, but that shouldn't mean you can't enjoy some Christmas traditions. In fact, the SFU Choir has decided they're taking their talents to a virtual setting, which makes it easier and safer for everybody involved. And to explain more, we're now joined by Toria Kindersley. She's the booking manager for the SFU Choir. Toria, what does that mean for people who still want to enjoy the classic experience of Christmas carolers? Yeah, so instead of us, you know, showing up at people's houses or surprising people at, at the, uh, in person, we're providing a video instead. So if you come and purchase a carol from us, you'll receive a video of one of our quartet singing uh, your chosen song with a personal message read out in the front. And then you can you do with that video file pretty much whatever you want. You can send it on to friends and families. Uh, it's a nice little addition to, you know, your digital Christmas cards or uh, a lot of our clients are actually using them as thank you gifts for donors for various uh, organizations. That's a great idea, and I love that it's got multiple uses. So you can also enjoy it personally, or you can send it along. You could send it forward, so to speak, which is kind of nice, because I think, especially this year, we need more Christmas cheer maybe than ever before. So it feels yeah, like it's, yeah, it's such a great idea to do something like this. But uh, tell us, like, how, how did this all begin? Because I'm sure... Um, you know, I'm sure you use Zoom. I'm sure others that you know are using Zoom a lot this year. So maybe that was just kind of like the seed that got planted right away, realizing like, hey, we're using this video conferencing software. We might as well use it for the choir since we can't go door to door this year. Um, so just to be clear, we don't actually do the recording over Zoom. Trying to do any sort of singing uh, 
uh, over video call like this would not work because of the lag. There's no way to keep actually like, in time with each other. Um, so all of our participants recorded individually and then they send their files to me and I edit them all together. Um, but the way it sort of started was we used to do caroling quite a bit in person, you know, usually event organizers wanting some atmospheric carolers in the background or stuff like that. Um, and we'd been talking for about a year or so about potentially doing something in person. But obviously with the pandemic, we could never do that uh, this year or doing like singing telegrams and stuff like that. Um, so I was, I am Bookings coordinator, so I was like, well, could we do this online potentially? Uh, and luckily, both my boyfriend and I are big problem solvers. So as soon as a question <laughs> like that comes up, we're both immediately, every single conversation is, how do we make this work? What would the logistics be? What kind of things would you need? Um, and luckily, I got a great group of volunteers coming together to help me uh, make it work. That's awesome. And uh, did I hear you correctly? Like you're the one that compiles all the different tracks together. In a way, you're more than just a booking organizer. You're like a music composer and producer at this point. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I am the one who does uh, the majority of the editing. Um, I have a couple people who help out if I'm like, well, I'm really busy, can't do this right now. Can you do this for me? Um, but yeah, it's, it's been interesting. Um, it's definitely a big learning experience. We've never done anything online like this before, never had a need to, obviously. Um, so trying to brainstorm ways to make sure that people come in and they come in in sync and we can line people up really easily and they sound good together was uh, a big challenge. You know what? That's one of the uh, the silver linings maybe of 2020 is that so many people are learning new things all the time simply because we kind of have to. In your case, that's exactly what happens. So uh, to, to clarify, you know, people listening – you can't just request the choir to sing any old song, if I understand that. Uh, there's a set list of caroling tracks that you can select from. So could you maybe run down that list with us? Because someone who's listening right now might be thinking, wow, this is a really great idea. And uh, I'm thinking about maybe reaching out and booking a session or a video for myself. Yeah, sure. So we do have six songs that to choose from. Um, we've got We Wish You a Merry Christmas, Deck the Halls, O Come All You Faithful, Angels We Have Heard on High, Silent Night, and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Do you have a wider selection of songs available? But uh, you can email me at bookings at sqchoir.ca um, if you want something more customized, and we'll see what we can do. Obviously, it's dependent on, you know, singers' availability, and this is a busy time of year for everybody, so no promises, but... If you got something really special, we can see what we can do about it. That's excellent. And for pricing, you know, how much will this cost for people? So, yeah, one video will cost $12, um, just if you that includes the song and one message. If you want something a little bit more custom, you can email me and we'll, you know, give you an estimate based on the amount of effort required, uh, you know, editing time, singing time, stuff like that to see what it would take to get it to you. And so far, have you heard from respondents uh, who have maybe thrown in a review? Have they enjoyed it? Uh, you know, how has that gone so far? And maybe also the experience from the carolers and the singers, because I'm sure for them, this is a brand new experience. Yeah, so the few couple of feedbacks I've received have been great. People seemed really happy um, about it. On the carol experience, definitely been a learning experience. Singing on your own into a microphone is just such a different experience than singing in person in a choir. I remember somebody said, she sent me her video and then she was like, that took me 16 takes. It took her like a whole hour to get it done. And I was like, I am so grateful that you put that much effort into getting it right. And that, you know, someone like that cares that much about making a good product for us to put out there. Um, yeah, so it's definitely been an interesting challenge. 
I love hearing that. And uh, for those listening, there you go. Guarantee that you're not getting something that's done in five minutes. You're getting something that's done very specially, uh, very carefully, and tailored to you as you enjoy it. Toria, thank you so much for giving us some time here. I, I think this is such a wonderful program launched by the SFU Choir. And again, maybe uh, send us that uh, email address because uh, maybe people listening right now want to jot that down really quickly. Yeah, sure. So if you just want to buy a regular carol, you can go to caroling.sfuchoir.ca. Um, but if you have questions, concerns, or a custom request, you can email me at bookings at sfuchoir.ca, and I'll get back to you. Perfect. Uh, Toria, thank you so much for your time here today. Thank you. Beautiful music. Absolutely beautiful. My thanks to show contributor John J.